From the Museum of Science in Boston, this is Pulsar, a podcast where experts answer questions from you, our audience. I'm your host, Jonathan Fanning, and recently we asked our audience if you had any chemistry questions. We found that many of your questions had the same theme, chemistry in the kitchen. So today, I'm joined by Zoe Peeler, a museum educator, to talk about kitchen chemistry. Hi, Zoe. Hi, thanks for having me. And mainly my background falls on the chemistry side. I am not much of a cook. I'm sure (laughs) people who know me would be very amused to hear me talking about cooking. But I do think it's a really interesting way of thinking about chemistry because it's so applicable to our daily lives. All right. So we're going to dive right into these questions. And I thought that for the sake of organization, I'd organize them a little bit like we were eating a meal. So for our first question, I want you to imagine we're about to enjoy an appetizer salad. And we have a question about emulsifiers. How does mustard or any other emulsifier prevent salad dressing from separating? Yeah, so in order to understand the answer to this question, you want to think about why is the salad dressing separating in the first place? And that's because you generally have two different ingredients that aren't mixing, like oil and water. That's classic. Everyone knows that oil and water don't mix. The reason why is because they're called polar and nonpolar substances. The molecules basically have their electrons arranged differently, and that means that they don't like to mix with each other. Now, an emulsifier belongs to a group of things called surfactants. They're really just a class of molecules that have both a polar and a nonpolar end to them. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. It can kind of act like a bridge in between the polar liquid and the nonpolar liquid. So when you mix that in, it can help them mix with each other. So yeah, this includes things like mustard, as we said, but it also includes egg yolk. Egg yolk is a really good emulsifier. Um, In fact, that's how you make mayonnaise. You have oil, you have water, You add egg yolk and you mix it all together, and that's what mayonnaise is. Hmm. But another surfactant that's not so much relevant to cooking is actually soap. Soap is really good at forming a bridge between water and greasy oils. So that's why soap helps you wash those oils off of your hands when you pair it up with water. Okay. So this is typically as far as I get into a meal before I start to crave dessert. So for our second question, why do cookies get either flat and crisp or fluffy and chewy? Uh, We skipped straight to dessert. (laughs) Okay. So this brings two concepts into play, which is leaveners and gluten. Leaveners, they're things that make the batter or the dough rise. So, for example, if you're making bread, you can use yeast to make your dough rise. Yeast would be the leavener. However, if you're making cookies, you're likely to use something more like baking powder or baking soda. Now, if you have a lot of the leavener, then your cookies will be a lot fluffier. If you don't have as much, they'll probably be flatter. The next part of this puzzle is the gluten, because the gluten is what gives the dough structure. I mean, you can create all the gas in the world with your leavener, but you need something to hold that gas. That's the difference between just blowing into the air versus blowing into a balloon. You need something to capture the gas and hold it. So that's what the gluten does. And if you mix your mixture a lot, you're going to create a lot of gluten, that's going to make your cookies a lot chewier. If you mix it as little as possible, then you're going to get a more delicate structure to your cookie. And that's why things like, for example, if you're making cake, the recipe will probably tell you, mix it just enough to combine the ingredients and then stop mixing. Hmm. Something else you mentioned when you were talking about leaveners was that you can use either baking soda and baking powder. And we have a question about what is the difference between those two and can they be substituted for each other? Yeah, this is a really an age-old 
question when it comes to baking. You know, the names sound almost exactly the same. So what's the difference really? And this kind of comes back to the idea of acids and bases. When you're thinking about acids and bases, those are like two different kinds of compounds that can react together. Baking soda is a base. Specifically, it's sodium bicarbonate. That's the name of the molecule. And when you add baking soda to a recipe, you're typically also adding an acid for it to react with, maybe vinegar. Baking soda and vinegar is a really classic science experiment, but more likely you might be adding lemon juice or buttermilk. Those are acidic ingredients that might react with your basic baking soda. Hmm. And when you add those together, the chemical reaction starts to happen. And one of the products of that reaction is a gas, carbon dioxide. And that is what's going to make your baked goods start to fluff up and rise. Hmm. So that's baking soda. Uh, when it comes to baking powder though, this is where things get a little more complicated. Baking powder actually has baking soda in it. It's part baking soda, but it also has another ingredient, which is an acid, a powdered acid. So this is really useful when you have a recipe that you don't want to add something like lemon juice or buttermilk to, where you're not adding a separate acid. In this case, you can just have the acid in the base right there in one ingredient. And when you mix them into the batter and they get wet, then they will start to react right there. Huh. I, I will say, though, the main takeaway here is that they are not the same and you should not substitute one for the other. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's a bad idea. Right. All right. So now that we have completed dessert, we can go back to the main course and talk a little bit about what's the best way to preserve nutrients when cooking vegetables? Yeah, this is an interesting question. It's one that's been explored quite a bit because there's a few different types of nutrients. For example, vitamins and minerals. Minerals are things like sodium, calcium potassium. Those are the different metals, elements that our bodies need in order to do things like, say, build stronger bones mm -hmm. in the case of calcium. Mm -hmm. uh, vitamins, on the other hand, are larger molecules. And those molecules, they're very important for our bodies, but they're a little harder to preserve when you're cooking because they can break down when they're exposed to heat and they can also sometimes dissolve in water. So the minerals are going to be easier to preserve. The vitamins are where it gets a little dicey. Now, it's actually kind of complicated when it comes to, is it better to cook them a certain way or is it better to just eat them raw, etc.? Because some vitamins will be damaged by cooking, but other vitamins can actually be enhanced. Hmm. So the, the kind of key takeaway when it comes to cooking vegetables is usually there isn't a huge difference between different ways of cooking them in terms of nutrient loss. And regardless of whether some are a little better than others, you know, it's just important to eat vegetables in general. So if you're eating one kind of vegetable and you lost some vitamin C, eat a different kind that's higher in vitamin C and everything should balance out in the end. Yeah. Two vegetables that I very much enjoy eating, but others don't necessarily enjoy when I eat are onions and garlic. <laughs> we have a question here. Why is it that onions and garlic make your breath so stinky? Garlic and onions belong to a family called the allium family, which includes shallots and leeks as well. They all have a lot of sulfuric compounds in them. In particular, there's a compound called allyl methyl sulfide which seems to be the main culprit behind bad breath. That particular molecule is more present in garlic and onions than in much other things. And that is what you're going to be smelling. And drinking something to wash them away, flossing, brushing your teeth, mouthwash, that can be one of the best ways to kind of reduce that. Hmm. 
Over the course of this extended social distancing, baking bread has become really trendy. And based on sort of my limited research, it appears that sourdough is sort of the pinnacle of home baking. What are some key differences between sourdough and, say, your average French bread roll? So... Sourdough can be a little easier to make in some senses because you don't need to go and buy dried up yeast at the grocery store in order to make it. Your typical bread recipe is you need to go to the grocery store, find your dry active yeast in the little packets or jars, and then add that to your recipe in order to get the leavening we talked about earlier. However, what I have personally noticed is that yeast is in very high demand right now. So sourdough bread is very appealing because you don't need to buy that yeast. Sourdough bread actually takes advantage of the yeast that's floating around in the air because yeast really is all around us. So you can take those little airborne fungi and kind of work them into what's called a sourdough starter, which is essentially just some flour and water. Now, if you manage to keep feeding your starter over time, you can kind of develop a colony of these yeasts. And after a while, you should have something that's very reliable when it comes to getting your bread to rise. However, it can take some time and effort in order to get your sourdough starter to a place that's actually going to work. And, and so does that mean that every sourdough loaf has sort of its own character because it's its own combination of different yeast strands? I would think so. There is one particular type of yeast that does the most as far as baking. People call it baker's yeast or brewer's yeast. It's the mm. same kind of yeast that's used to brew alcohol. So depending on the starter, you might get a slightly different flavor in your sourdough bread. All right. You had sort of mentioned this in your introduction, and I want to talk about it just a little bit before we wrap up, that the kitchen is sort of a really interesting place to explore chemistry. I'm wondering if you can reflect on that a little bit more, how we can use our kitchen to explore these early chemistry principles. Sure. So I do think it's worth noting that, you know, long before we had fancy labs where we did very controlled chemistry, people were taking advantage of these reactions. Back in ancient times, people were figuring out that they could grind up wheat and add flour and water together and they would get bread. Mm. Uh, so these kinds of reactions, you know, hooking proteins together into a gluten network or finding ways to make your dough rise. Those are things that have been around for a long time. And they're examples of chemistry that you don't need a lab per se to do, and they can really benefit us. Awesome. That's great. Thank you so much for uh, stopping by and talking about it a little bit. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our audience. If you'd like to have one of your questions answered by a visiting expert or a Museum of Science educator, you can email them to sciencequestions at mos.org. If you enjoyed this episode of Pulsar, don't forget to subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or on Spotify, as well as leaving a rating or a review for us. And please visit www.mos.org slash science matters to support MOS at home. That's it for this episode of Pulsar. Join us again soon.